I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. go. Welcome back. What's up? I got to pretend like I wasn't just talking to you for 45 minutes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's real. I was having Ashley withdrawal. I needed a little bit of uh, off the recording Ashley talk first. Yes, absolutely. And we'll probably talk afterwards. I know, right? <laughs> so hello to Mahalia. Oh, girl. Uh, Mahalia has come out of her box braids. Mm-hmm. And um, now she's pulled back in a bit of a little puff with some type of Afrocentric head wrap situation going on. Yeah. Let me tell you what Mahalia was doing, like, I guess about a week ago, I had gotten a a silk press, which is basically just like making your hair completely straight with blow dry and heat. This Houston humidity was having none of that, (laughs) which I knew was going to be the case. But I believe we had a whole episode about that being the case before. But but you know what? The 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 flip of that is that she wants to be curly because you don't straighten her. Exactly. And because I straighten Jules, when I want her to be curly, she's having none of that. (laughs) Well, yeah. I did find myself getting a little upset. And then I actually had that exact, you know, kind of come to Jesus moment. It was just like, Mahalia is doing what Mahalia is meant to do. Ah, Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Did you see the woman king? Hell yeah. What is wrong with me? Why was I so late to this? I didn't even, I just assumed you had seen it by now. I absolutely loved it. Oh my gosh. I loved, I loved Every character, I was so mad it ended, I needed to just watch it over again. I cannot wait to watch it again. Did you watch it? Is it out on, um, like, for streaming? Or did you go to the movie theater? I went to Delta Airlines. (laughs) (laughs) I went went on a flight to Jamaica. And I was watching it then. And I mean, I was, like, doing the whole, like, tick cry. I was like... (laughs) (laughs) I was crying. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I just... Mm. I just loved everything about it. And I I watched it on my way back home from Jamaica. Yes. So I felt so badass when I got home. Like I immediately put on workout clothes and started working out. (laughs) Because I was like, you know what? I just want to be, what is it? The Ogojie? I want to be one of them. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Love that movie. Love Viola Davis. I love Viola Davis. I loved her whole supporting cast. Mm Mm-hmm. I loved everybody. Incredible. And the story is really complex and super interesting. Like the backstory of the Dahomey tribe. And Man, listen. Yeah. I know you went down a rabbit hole just like I, I did. did afterwards. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. What part? Yeah. Now I need to go to Benin and see that big um that big statue. Have you seen that before? I have not. Me either. Oh, man. But since you went down the rabbit hole, I know you saw the <laughs> picture of the big statue. So. Yeah. 
you know, that was also part of the, the inspiration behind the, the Kingsguard and Black Panther. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed Wakanda forever, but that woman king. Yeah. Ooh, it was some badassery going on up in there. Yep. And it was kicking people's. Okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's not that I like violence. It's just that, you know, mm-hmm. I love this idea of, you know, like, like nobody ever tells a story of us resisting certainly and it flips Uh. the script on like power dynamics i think that was just also really meaningful to see real power emanating from an all-female group of warriors Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so good Mm -hmm. so good oh Mm. the resilience of our people i tell you the truth amen so Uh. ladies and gentlemen um and non-binary folk if you have been waiting for Ashley to tell you a story, wait no more. It is your lucky day. So, Dr. McMullen, mm-hmm. tell us, what do you and Mahalia have for us as the blood? <laughs> so, I hope that you will, and you and Jules will accept us presenting two words as the what. Okay, okay. The words are letting go. Letting go. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. I'm going to try to get through this story the best I can. So y'all forgive me on the front end, but I'll tell you the inspo. As we talked about, I was, you know, back in Houston for the last two weeks. And one of the things that I did on New Year's Day, actually, I went out to the National Cemetery, um, which is where my grandmother is buried. I was on my way to Austin to spend just a couple of days in solitude and checking in with some, um, some college friends. I kind of had the idea on the back end, you know, since the National Cemetery is pretty far north of the city where my parents live, that I could, you know, use that opportunity as I was heading to Austin to stop there. I hadn't really done this since she passed. You know, I, I can only describe it as like one of the most like peaceful experiences I'd had after this past year. Like the weather was like perfect outside. It's like this sprawling green and these excellent volunteers had made handmade these wreaths to put on every tombstone. Mm. And so the entire cemetery smelled like fresh pine. Mm. And I just sat out there and laid on the grass. And there were a lot of other folks who would come in, in part, I think, because it was New Year's Day. But people had just like spread out like um, picnic blankets and lawn chairs. Some were with family, some were by themselves. One person brought their dog with them. And it was just kind of like this communal thing of people just spending or just being very present in community, whether, you know, whatever stage of grief or acceptance, it just felt very like loving. Mm. And I appreciated that because it kind of set my intention for the new year. You know, I was able to reflect even deeper again in a, in a place that had previously um, been very painful. Um, Cause the last time I was at that cemetery, I was in a lot of pain. Mm. Of course, you know, this is segueing into another Shelly Ryle story, which it's going to focus on actually one day in okay. her hospital stay. And I may have maybe alluded or touched on this previously, but I wanted to just dig in a little deeper. Okay. 
it was a Saturday, exactly seven days after she'd had the stroke. You know, that entire week was hellacious. For me personally, just very kind of traumatized and like anxious and really holding steadfastly to this outcome that, you know, we just got to, we just got to get her out the hospital. We just got to get to rehab. And so that Saturday, she had actually been finally transitioned from the ICU to the step-down unit. And it was something that I had kind of pushed her team on, her medical team, even though I could feel they were a little hesitant about it. But I was really just laser focused on she's stable, you know, the damage is done. We just have to really try to get rehabbing as soon as possible. And so each morning I would get up after a very restless night, usually around 4 or 5 a.m., and then I would be at the hospital by six and I would stay for maybe like eight hours and then go home exhausted and do it the next day. But for some reason this day, like in my mind, it was like, okay, she's down in the step down. This is going to be a good day. Like this is going to be the day that things kind of turn around. And I remember walking in the hospital to her new room and actually the, um, the nurse who had received her from the ICU, she'd gotten transferred pretty late, was actually walking out. And um, she stopped me for whatever reason. I can't really remember. It's been a while now. But she gave me a hug mm. <laughs> and was just like, oh, you must be her granddaughter. I heard you were coming. Mm. And so, again, it kind of like tightened my grip, so to speak, on like things are going to be okay. Like this is going to change today. I walked in the room and I immediately knew something was wrong. She looked very delirious, which is something that she hadn't been the previous seven days, which is also was an assault to my sensibilities as well. Just having never seen her in such a vulnerable state, mm -hmm. you know, this woman who was, you know, a warrior, so to speak, in my life for 30 plus years. The other thing was, you know, her, her breathing sounded off. What I recognized on the back end was Strider, but I couldn't put it together in my mind at that point. And so, you know, I sat there just kind of tense looking at her for the next couple hours, you know, staring at the monitor and like all the things. It's very much on the edge. And the other thing was, you know, that I recognized was, um, you know, thinking about transfers. It's not just, you know, a patient stability that matters when it comes to moving from the ICU to somewhere else. It's the amount of monitoring that goes on. Yep. And so there weren't many people coming in and out of the room. I met the nurse early on who was someone who seemed less experienced. And I was trying to be pretty cautious about, you know, not wanting to unnecessarily like flex or like flash like the, the doctor status and, you know, trying to force certain treatments. Right. But, you know, as the day went on, things weren't improving and I was starting to get like really anxious. I asked the nurse to page the hospital medicine doctor who was over her care, who had not been in the room since I'd been there. And now we're kind of leading into the afternoon. And so he circles back maybe like 30, 40 minutes later. And I was just like, oh, well, they didn't answer. So I feel myself like starting to get upset. And I was just like, okay, well, what did you put in the page? <laughs> and I, then I started to kind of, you know, assert myself more and just like, this is what you need to say and make sure that she comes now. At some point, you know, the, the breathing becomes so labored that the charge nurse comes in because she can hear it from the actual nurse's station. Yeah. And she decided to go ahead and call, I don't know if it was uh, a code stroke or some sort of signal to get more bodies in the room. Yeah, like um, a rapid response. Exactly. Of course, within minutes, there's a team of rapid responders coming in 
And this is the first time I'm seeing the the hospitalist who's assigned to her. Mm. Hospitalist walks in and I can tell she has no real understanding of like the patient background or history. She's trying to get the nurse to explain what's going on. He can't explain it. So I jump in (laughs) and give her the history. And obviously like at this point, I'm, I'm 38 hot. (laughs) Oh yeah. I'm even like feeling it right now again as I'm talking mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. The The decision is made to transfer her to the ICU. You know, it was something that I really, really didn't expect to have happen. I had basically staked all of my hopes on the fact that, you know, we were, this was a day of forward progress. And to hear that she was going back to the ICU was devastating. Mm-hmm. And I even like at one point the the hospitalist left the room, I'm assuming to like page the IC. I don't know what she was doing, but I left the room and went and found her and went off. And, you know, I I say this not as someone who's proud of that. You know, I could recognize even at that moment, you know, this was a physician who was shorter than me. She was another woman of color. Mm. And I, you know, I don't know how I would have talked to someone who maybe had a taller stature or, you know, a different countenance. In hindsight, this was someone who was hampered down by a bad system. Yeah. To assume a list of, you know, 20 plus patients and be expected to know everything, especially on your first day and have something like a rapid response called is really difficult. But, you know, as a family member having love's myopic view, I was really, really hurt that she didn't know what was going on Mm -hmm. with my grandmother and didn't seem to have control of the room. That the nurses, the senior nurses were the ones who were taking control of the room. Mm. You know, part of that anger also was I felt like I was failing. Mm. Like I wasn't doing my job of making sure that things were moving in the way that they were supposed to. And also the fact that I didn't quite recognize that it was strider and airway edema that was going on um, when I first walked in the room. So kind of pushing us forward, she did go up to the ICU. And I remember kind of trying to find my way through the hospital. Um, I went to like five different elevators. I was so disoriented. I finally get up there and I see them moving ventilator equipment into the room. Again, even though that seems to be, you know, an, um, an appropriate response in the back end, at the time, I was just like, oh, my God, no, please. For some reason, it just felt like if she got intubated, like. She'd yeah. never get extubated. Exactly. And, um, you know, the, the, hot, the um, one of the ICU physicians even pulled me aside and was just like, you know, do you, do you think this is something we should do? Mm. And I didn't have any bandwidth (laughs) to think about that at that moment. So the answer was yes, but I went in the room beforehand. And like, I don't know that I actually was able to get the words out, but what I was emoting to my grandmother at that time was, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she, you know, even though she had seemed so out of it and delirious before, was very focused at that moment. And I remember her trying to say something. Mm. You know, I think this is what she was saying. Again, I could have, you know, jumbled it up in my mind. But what I 
feel like she was trying to tell me was, I have to go. Mm. And she squeezed my hand really firm two times. And um, I left the room because I couldn't watch it happen. And I knew actually at that time that my mother and my brother were actually down in the parking lot. Cause usually we would, you know, I would be there through the afternoon and then my mom would come cause there was only one person allowed um, to visit at that time. The other thing that was kind of earth shattering for me was I felt like not only had I failed my grandmother, I failed my mother. Cause I had to go outside and, and tell her what was going on. Cause they'd been trying to reach me. And I was like, I can't talk right now. I can't talk. I told her what had happened and, you know, my mom <laughs> gave me the strength that I didn't have at that moment. And she was just like, okay, it's okay. She went in up to the ICU and I sat in my brother's truck. I sat in the back seat and I just let it all out. Just this torrent of tears, emotions that I'd been like holding onto so tensely for the last seven days you know, my brother and I don't express emotions very readily in front of each other. Um, so he, you know, he just sat there and handed me a towel and, you know, didn't say anything. And um, as I'm sitting there, like kind of trying to pull myself together was this immediate, not immediate, but it was kind of just like, you know, this moment of, I guess, discernment or, or clarity in the midst of all of that pain was almost like this voice was just like, it's going to be okay. Mm. Like you can let go. And I remember when I got to that conclusion, it was not that I um, had suddenly realized like, oh, okay, she's going to die now. It's just like, you can let whatever is going to happen, happen and it will be okay. And it was like this, all the tension just left my body. <laughs> and it was just this extreme like peace that came over me. And I just like took a couple of breaths and I just said to my brother, like, can you just take me somewhere? <laughs> and, you know, it was, there were no words. He just started the car and we drove down the street to um, this pizza beer joint place <laughs> that's close to the hospital. And we just sat on the patio and had some beers together. And I talked on the phone with my mom and, you know, it, it was such a pivotal moment for me. And of course, you know, at this point, folks know kind of the end of the story, that trajectory was that my grandmother, you know, continued to decline and we eventually brought her home on hospice. But um, what that taught me in that moment was the difference between letting go and giving up. Mm. I think that for many families in that situation, understandably, you know, to allow yourself to be at peace with what's happening. It can feel like you're giving up on the person that you love. And I think, you know, it wasn't that at that moment that I'd given up hope. Like I was still very hopeful that, you know, it was just, you know, an airway issue that could be reversed and, you know, we'd be back on track. But what I was able to let go of was this 
extreme fear that we, myself, or my family would not be okay if my grandmother passed. You know, it also made me understand within myself, like, not just in this moment, but in other parts of my life where I'm holding on to a certain thing or a particular outcome or a particular vision. And it's causing me anxiety because I want it to happen so badly. And what that anxiety means for me now is that I'm holding on to something that I need to let it go and be at peace with. And so I've used that moment many a times to remind me of the spaces in my life where I'm attached to things and I need to let them go. But it doesn't mean that I'm giving up on you know certain things that I hope to happen in my life. It just means that I'm not attached to them to the fact that I can't move on, that I can't live or feel like that I'm not strong enough to deal with the outcome. So that was a lot. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I'm just taking it in. It was beautiful. Mm. Um, one thing I realized is that I, I, I can never um, get tired of hearing a story about, you know, some, some like tiny sliver of what you felt when you were moving through your grandmother's transition, because it's such a pivotal circumstance. And it just lets me realize that like, there's probably 10,000 more stories still yet to be told inside of there. And I'm here for it. Um, you know, I, I'm really just kind of soaking this in. I don't, I don't have a lot of like deep things to say as much as um, that, you know, if it's any singular thing I want out of life, it's just a life that is free of regret. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I love the way that you sort of tied this to your life beyond you know, your grandmother's um, illness, you know, um, what else am I holding on to that, that, that I really need to loosen my hand around and just mm -hmm. let go of, you know, um, it's kind of like when you're holding something really tight, you open your hand up and it stays, mm -hmm. um, then, then, okay, you were meant to have it. But if it slips between your fingers, um, if you have to hold it like that, um, then maybe you shouldn't have it, right? Um, mm -hmm. But this 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 sort of tug of war between okay am i quitting too soon am i giving up we see that in the hospital all the time you know and we live that we feel that in our own lives too and as a mother god knows i feel that all the time where i'm like oh my gosh am i you know screwing up am i supposed to back off am i supposed to be more involved am i supposed to be less involved more in your business less in your <laughs> business but at the end of the day, I just don't want to have regrets, you know, Absolutely. I just don't. And um, I, I will say one other piece of your story that kind of got me thinking too was how every patient um, in the hospital is somebody's in of one, you know, they are, they are the show. <laughs> they don't care about <laughs> the rest of your list. And <clears throat> I remember how I felt when the hospitalist would come in when my father was in the hospital and like reach in her pocket and take out a list to sort of reconcile who is this guy mm -hmm. and what, what am I supposed like, like a few things. And I, because there, there's a piece of you that's like, what do you mean you need to look at this list to know mm -hmm. who this person is? Mm -hmm. She's, she's Shelly Rael. She's my grandmother. She's, she's an evangelist. She's a singer. She's a preacher. She's a storyteller. She's a wife. She's a sister. She's a, she's a mom. She's, 
what do you mean? You don't need to look at that sheet. You're like, you mm -hmm. should know who she is, you know. Um, but how many times have I done that? Yes. In somebody's room. How many yep. times have I, you know, even outside of their door, like tried to look real quick or even mm -hmm. got in the room and didn't not quite know as much as I should. Yeah. Um, and then like keep talking until they can tell me something that makes me... So that's why you got to live because the more you live and the older you get, you, all it takes is one experience like this mm -hmm. to just completely shake up the way you see what you've been doing. You're like, man, <laughs> look, this, this was that experience for me. Everything that I criticized that made me so angry and upset were things that I had done myself. Yeah. And, you know, even bringing up going off on that, that hospitalist, which, you know, I imagine many folks on this uh, listening to this could empathize with, but at the same time, like, that's not my, that that's not my character, you know, yeah. as much as I would like to think that I could, you know, pop off on somebody, like I was doing something that was outside of character for me because I was so afraid. Mm. But that's a word right there, right? Because mm -hmm. the word there is that this was out of character for you. And I would like to believe that most people are not looking to go off on like mm -hmm. other adults that they don't know, right? Yeah. Um, so most of the time in the hospital, when we see extremes of emotion, it's not about us. Yes. Right. It's not mm -hmm. right. Um, and I, I do feel like, and I, and some probably will argue me with this to say like, Hey, our wellness matters too. But I kind of feel like as the physicians, um, or members of the care team that when stuff like that is happening, um, how we how we respond can really de-escalate it a lot mm -hmm. right um mm -hmm. i had a friend recently who had a um loved one in the hospital and um they had forgotten to take the npo order off and their loved one did not get a breakfast tray and then the lunch trays came and the loved one did not have a lunch tray yet either mm -hmm. and um my friend figured out that this was all an error and the lunch tray person was like rolling the big metal cart down the hall. Right. And my friend was so scared. Right. Mm -hmm. So upset, so worried about her, her loved one. And she stepped in the hallway and would not let them move the, the metal cart down the hallway. Mm -hmm. It became a big, you know, kerfuffle in the hospital. People trying to get fed all this stuff. <laughs> she like, ain't nobody eating nothing. <laughs> until... <laughs> but, but, um, when all of this happened, all I could think to myself was like, man, you know, I, I really wish somebody had just been like, yo, wait a minute, this, mm -hmm. this person, this is their end of one. And yeah. if their end of one missed breakfast and missed lunch, um, that's a big deal. And so somebody on this floor has got to respond like that. Like, yeah. like the person you love the most didn't get two trays in a row. Um, but we end up focusing on the fact that somebody's being inappropriate. Yeah. That to me feels like, you know, the perpetual challenge of working in healthcare, particularly if you're working in an inpatient hospital setting, yeah. is that, yeah. you know, your normal day to day is somebody else's worst nightmare. Yep. Somebody's worst nightmare. Ain't that the truth? Mm. But, you know, I think the beautiful thing about telling a story like the story that you told is 
it humanizes those individuals sitting at the bedside, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because now, you know, when I'm on service later this month, I, you know, I might, I might remember this story and see the whole thing differently. If I walk in there and a loved one is, you know, dozing off in this bedside chair, who wants to doze off in a bedside chair? They would much <laughs> rather be in a bed, right? They're doing mm -hmm. that because they don't want to miss you when you come up there. Yeah. They want to know that everything's okay. And they damn sure don't want to see you unfold a piece of paper and try to figure out who their loved one is, mm -hmm. you know, and then in the event that the person is like somewhat losing impulse control, maybe I've been at this long enough. If I'm okay, if my, if I'm in a well enough space, maybe I can just be still. Yeah. I don't even got to fight you. I can just be still. <laughs> oh, well, um, y'all, um, you don't, you didn't see this, but Ashley told this story without crying, which I love that she told the story for as long as she did, because I was all the way unglued <laughs> the whole time. She was, <laughs> but you gave me some time to kind of dry up my mucus and my mucus <laughs> brain. Yeah. Now yeah, I, I saw you. <laughs> I was struggling there for a minute, but. Well, I appreciate you listening. It's just never a good time to lose somebody that's been so important to your everyday three-dimensional life, mm -hmm. no matter how old they are, no matter what illness happens to them or anything. So the other poignant piece about you repeatedly telling stories about your grandmother, the significance of that is that people, you know, when people pass away, there's, there's the death of their body. But then there's this death that happens when you can't talk about them the mm -hmm. way that you want to talk about them. Like, oh, you already told me that story. You know, I don't know that you told me that story that way. Mm -hmm. And um, I, want you, I, I want you and other people who have somebody who is that significant to them to always have a place for the stories. Yeah. Like always, it should always be somebody who loves you, who is ready to hear it and absorb it and take to internalize it and um and walk out into their life with it mm. and as somebody who loves you um i i am definitely here for whatever else you got in the <laughs> in the book of shelly rael just keep it coming yeah well every time i think i've closed it there's something new that comes uh comes to the surface so yeah, but tell your girl to get some tissue next time because i was over here like <laughs> i didn't shoot your warning shot Snot. I'm gonna slide in my nose with the side of my my sweater. It's not uh, really pretty over here, but oh well. It's all good. <laughs> well, I think you're always pretty, tears and all. Ting. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sis. Well, welcome back from your vacay, and um, you know, live your best life this week. I love you. Likewise, love you too, sis. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production. Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and The Clinical Problem Solvers, our med Twitter fam. And especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.